Hi there, you're listening to In the Shadows, a podcast about spying, war and security issues. This week I spoke with Professor Rory Cormack from the University of Nottingham about covert action. He broke down what it is and some of the most exciting and notable examples from the last 500 years. If you'd like to keep up to date with security news, follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter with the username at In the Shadows Pod. Enjoy. Hi Rory, welcome to the podcast and thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? Pleasure, absolutely fine. Thanks for um, thanks for inviting me. No problem. It's great to have you on. Um, so one of your research and teaching focuses is covert action. Um, but what is it about this subject area that kind of pulled you in and made you want to pursue it further? Well, it started off with just the really interesting stories. It started off with you know, rummaging around the archives and coming up with just, just fascinating stories about secret wars and undercover operations and propaganda and all this kind of stuff. But then when you dig deeper, it gets, it gets I think it's particularly fascinating because you've got all the stories, but then you've also got these some really big and important issues, including things like, you know, liberal democracies doing covert action, um, propaganda and fake news. What's, what is truth? I mean, you go from, it's, it's funny, you want, one minute you go from, here's a James Bond style story about some agent uh, officer in the desert, all the way through to how do we know what we know and what is truth? So it's one of those kind of cool subjects which just touches on so many different different things. What do kind of covert action operations actually look like? You've mentioned a broad scale of things there, but like what are the main things that we see um, governments and intelligence agencies doing? Essentially, it boils down to attempt to intervene to shape events in um, an unacknowledged or plausibly deniable manner. So it's, it's quite active thing. The clue's kind of in the name, it's, it's, it's active. It's about interfering, shaping, intervening, manipulating, disrupting, all this kind of stuff, which makes it distinct from intelligence gathering, which is more passive. It's about um, watching somebody, listening to somebody, but you're not changing anything. Covert action is when the intelligence agencies, and it normally is intelligence agencies, actually change stuff themselves they affect the outcome so there's a whole that that covers a whole range of different types of activities on the one hand we've got uh, propaganda which can be what they call grey propaganda is the the, the lightest area of covert action which is essentially something which is broadly true uh, might be selectively edited but it's broadly true and then it is inserted in a newspaper or something just so so the source is masked uh, and that's the, probably the lesser controversial end. And it goes all the way through to election meddling, um, arming terrorists or insurgents, uh, all the way through to, to, to coups and ultimately assassination. Although assassination is very rare, we should, we should add. <laughs> when you're looking back through the archives, when do you begin to see in the UK our government and intelligence agencies engaging in, in covert action? We've been doing it for ages. We've been doing it since before the UK was even created. Uh, one of my favourite examples was Queen Elizabeth I, all the way back in the 1570s, and she is using covert action, she's using what we now call proxy wars, to send money and to send mercenaries to support uh, rebellion in the what, what is now the Netherlands, the Dutch Low Countries, uh, who were rebelling against King Philip of Spain. And uh, anyway, it's very similar what we what we see now in, in other places. But my my favourite thing about that is um, one of her advisors or courtiers was talking about it and he described it as covert means so you even see some similar kind of language going on so this is this state this statecraft is is very very old 
Um, it's only been, I don't know, formalized or institutionalized probably from World War II onwards. Um, and ever since the Second World War, Britain has been doing quite a lot of this stuff. I should add, like, not on the same scale as the Americans or the, the Soviets, um, but we are, were, are partial to a bit of um, hidden meddling. On that, what are, the, what are the more notable examples in the last hundred years of, of covert action, not just from the UK, but from, say, the Soviets or the Americans? Uh, most famous examples, um, probably uh, Bay of Pigs always comes to mind as, as a famous one, mainly because it was big and it failed horrendously. Um, this was when in 1961, the Americans wanted to overthrow the Castro government in Cuba. And to do so, they decided to covertly train a bunch of um, Cuban exiles and rebels and then landed them in the Bay of Pigs in Cuba and hoped this would lead to some sort of armed uprising against Castro and Castro would fall. Um, but it's probably one of the most famous examples of covert action because Castro knew in advance it wasn't remotely covert. <laughs> um, the secret was not kept and it, and it, was, a, it was an absolute disaster. Um, but that then led to Operation Mongoose, which included various attempts to try and assassinate Castro, which is always, were always quite fascinating because um, they, they did they vary from hiring a mafia hitman hitman to try and shoot him all the way through to putting poison inside his um, scuba diving suit. Wow! So all this kind of crazy stuff there. Um, on the on the Russian side, I mean, the most famous recently for meddling in various elections, um, particularly the 2016 presidential election in the US and um, as we just saw the other day, um, supposedly in the current um, presidential election. But there are plenty of other examples from, from history of them doing stuff, trying to meddle in elections, uh, but also uh, doing assassinations. They, do, they have done this kind of stuff way more than, um, than, than Britain has, that's for sure. And Britain doesn't have a great track record in assassinations. There's like one or two examples um, that we know of, and that was from a very long time ago. Maybe the most, I think the most crazy or maybe famous um, black propaganda example from the, from the Soviets was from the 1980s, where they came up with a disinformation a lie that the AIDS uh, virus was created in America, the biological warfare thing gone wrong. Yeah. Um, and it ended up in newspapers. Um, it, this was so outlandish and so negative, they actually apologised for it a few years later. But that's kind of an example of, of um, a famous Cold War black propaganda operation. Wow, it, it sounds like it ranges from kind of like the, the exciting James Bond style stuff to, to just the more bizarre stuff that you, you wouldn't expect. Um, why, why does a country actually decide to, to pursue this line of kind of operations? Well, lots of, lots of presidents, prime ministers assume that it's going to be an easy option, like a kind of a magic bullet to solve some intractable problem. If, if you, you, know, you can't go to war because you can't afford it or because your opponent's got a, big, a bigger military, you can't negotiate with these people. You might be a stalemate. Um, and so a lot of times presidents and prime ministers choose to go down the covert route. And I think one of the myths in covert action there's a lot of there are a lot of myths one of them is that this is done by rogue elephants as they, they're called in the jargon you know um cia officers just just doing their own thing going nuts shooting people 
without any proper authorization. But that's that's not true. It, the vast, vast majority of times this comes from the president and the prime minister. So they choose to do it because they think it's easy, but also, and there are a bunch of other reasons, is to, to avoid uh, domestic audience costs, as, as, as we say in the, in the academic jargon, which basically means if the public don't want to go to war, then prime ministers are more likely to use covert action because they don't want to be told off by publics. Um, and it's, it's the same thing happens at international level. If, you, if you're going to be um, accused of breaking international law by overtly intervening somewhere through, you know, if, if, if you haven't got self-defense, if you haven't got the right authority to, to launch a war, then states will be more likely to covertly intervene. So it's about avoiding these different, uh, these different audience costs. So one of the, the trends that we've seen in recent years is um, just how difficult it is for certain governments to hide their roles in things like propaganda and disinformation, most notably the Russians. How do you kind of go about actually concealing your role in, in things like covert action? How, how has it been done over the years? Well, this is a really fun thing. So sometimes states do want to completely conceal their role and they will um, use um, different agents, they will create fake radio stations, for example, and have them running outside of the, 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 the territory. Um, they will create forgeries and all this kind of stuff. But you're right. It's very difficult to completely mask your role. Mm -hmm. And this has always been the case. We kind of assume that it's becoming more difficult. And it probably, it probably is, to be fair. But it's always been difficult to, to hide your uh, your your role and um, that's not always a bad thing i've had a great example the other day of a british forgery and they knew that the russians would be suspicious that it was a forgery yeah. so what they did to kind of double mask the role they dropped in some phrases which they knew the chinese would use so they were hoping that if the russians realized it was a forgery they'd blame the chinese <laughs> for doing the forgery and we get off scot-free. Um, so there's always kind of different levels and games to it. But on a different, on a different note, um, sometimes you can use covert action to communicate with an adversary. Uh, and there's, there's lots of academic literature on this. Um, and in that sense, you kind of want them to know it's you. Otherwise, you're not gonna be able to communicate with them. Right. If, you, if you want to use covert action in order to show something, demonstrate some sort of resolve or criticism of an of a, of a, of a adversary's policy, you need the adversary's counterintelligence apparatus to pick it up, to, to know it's you. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, the message won't have any meaning. So there's lots of different audiences going on, and it's much more complicated and indeed much more interesting than um, a state trying to do something completely secretly and get away with it, because there's, there's always someone who knows. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. And we see this um, at the moment, arguably, with Russia, where we have what um, some of us have described as the rise of implausible deniability. Every, everyone knows it's the Russians behind various stuff, whether it's poisoning the people like Skripal, um, Ukraine, Estonia, US elections. The Russians deny it, but it's implausible. The most implausible one, you might remember, was that ridiculous interview that they gave about um, Salisbury Cathedral. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh <laughs> like we, came, we came to we came to Salisbury to check out the the cathedral. Blah 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 blah. The wonderful spire. Um, <laughs> we that is it's utterly implausible. But sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes um, the ambiguity around around all of this actually 
can work in the state's interests. Um, Putin, for example, by, by everyone pointing the finger at Putin, we start to give him credit for things that he might not have done. We start to think that he's this kind of devious, grand master chess player who is always three steps ahead of everyone else. Yeah. Um, so sometimes just having that exposure, exposure can cultivate a reputation and we end up doing his work for him. So it's, it doesn't always have to be totally secret to be successful. Yeah. And how, how has covert action changed over the, over the years? How has it evolved? Has it evolved? It has. It's a, it's a difficult one because the biggest impact has been the internet, obviously. Um, but whether that creates whole new covert action is, is debatable. I, I don't think it has. I think it's traditional stuff with a, with a, a cyber twist. So if you take propaganda, for example, the internet, the online propaganda is, is still doing the same thing that propaganda has always done, which is trying to um, find divisions in a society and smash them open and exploit those divisions. Um, it just does it online now. Um, so I think it's dangerous to say that the internet has changed everything. because a lot of things that are inherent to different types of co-action are still, are still very, um, very valid. Where, where it has changed, particularly the propaganda side of things, is that you can now do way more propaganda operations way more quickly uh, with social media. And you can also target them better as well because you can gather all this data on people's online habits and then tailor the message to them specifically. Like in the old days of propaganda, you would have an article being placed in a newspaper mm -hmm. and that would then go to a whole city, for example. It's not very tailored, or you'd spam, spam a whole town with um, leaflets. Whereas now you can craft your individual message to you per personally based on your, your Facebook content and stuff. So it could become more, uh, more, yeah, more targeted, more tailored. Whether that means more successful, it's, it's, it's hard to know. It's incredibly difficult to judge the impact of um, propaganda operations. Would you say that these kind of operations are Gen like well not just propaganda but kind of covert action is generally successful or does it have quite a low success rate <laughs> that, is, that is a really 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 hard question um, <laughs> no no it's, it's a good question and um it's, it's just very difficult to answer because it depends how we judge success it depends what the what the state doing the covert action wanted to achieve yeah. and that's not all that's often quite difficult to work out even when you've got the archival record it's quite difficult to work out because the goals shift quite a lot mm -hmm. so we know that um we know that american interventions a book came out last year by an american scholar called lindsay o'rourke and she argues that american covert regime changes in the cold war had a 39% success rate, um, which isn't massively high. No. Um, but it depends on how, you know, you, you, did, did they always want to do a regime change, for example? And covert action exists below the level of regime change. So how do we judge an individual propaganda operation? Um, what, does it, what did it want to achieve? Sometimes a propaganda operation doesn't want to overthrow an election. Sometimes a propaganda operation just wants to confuse the opponent's intelligence services and, and, and um, tie them down in something. Sometimes they just want to disrupt something. Um, it's becoming easier to judge success to an extent, but only because the operations themselves generally are becoming a little bit more tactical, a little bit more short term. So we're seeing fewer big 
coups and things and more using covert action to disrupt a terrorist operation. So it's easier to say that succeeded if that terrorist operation failed. Yeah. But I mean, it still, it still gets quite complicated because even with targeted killing, for example, you know that that person's died or hasn't died. But the next question is, well, what difference did it make? Yeah. What difference did killing ex-terrorists make on that group's ability to conduct terrorist attacks or on terrorism more generally? And that's really, really hard to know. Same with propaganda. You can count the number of um, articles that you've successfully managed to place in a foreign newspaper, mm. but you can't count the impact that those articles had on the people reading them, or it's very difficult to do. So that's a, a very long academic answer. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really, really hard. The more, sim the more simple answer is that generally we might see short-term successes in terms of coups or assassinations or whatever, um, but that leads to longer-term consequences, um, which are usually negative. So you might see a, a short-term hit, a short-term success, and then longer-term problems, which might be... Um, you know, growth of a lack of uh, stunting democracy, increase in civil violence, um, that kind of stuff, increase in dictatorships, um, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, so that's probably a simple answer, but it is a, it is a ridiculously hard <laughs> question. The bigger thing is that do people think they work? Um, and I, I, I think a lot of presidents and prime ministers do think they work, and that's why they keep uh, returning to them. The, the topic and question of oversight has been brought up a few times um, in recent months due to the Russia report and the bill that's currently going through Parliament um, regarding undercover agents and informants and whatnot. Is there any kind of oversight when it comes to, to well, the UK engaging in covert action? Is enough being done? No, not, 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 not really. I mean, a lot more is done now. A lot, lot, lot more is done now. Um, so before 1994, there was no parliamentary oversight at all. Yeah. Because MI6, which is the UK agency that does the most, most of this stuff, um, did not formally exist until 1994. So the only oversight of UK covert action came from Foreign Office, came from Prime Minister's Office, Cabinet Office before 94. And then you have the, the Intelligence, um, the, uh, the ISC, Intelligence Security Committee, um, comes in 1994. And it's quite weak to start with, doesn't have loads of powers. It's been beefed up a bit um, over the last few years but I would argue it's still got quite a long way to go um, particularly when it comes to covert action because yeah. they don't they don't really have much tradition of examining operations they can talk about broad policy they can talk about broader expenditure um, they occasionally talk about failure um, but I mean, it's a world away from from the American system for example where Congress is supposed to be notified before a covert action even starts so what is something that people generally get wrong when talking about covert action? Is there something that kind of frustrates you as, as somebody who <laughs> is an expert in this topic? Yeah, there's a couple of things that often get uh, mythologized, I suppose. One is, like I mentioned earlier, this rogue elephant idea that, that um, intelligence officers go around just doing their own stuff without any, without any instructions or authorization from, from governments, because it's just not true. Yeah. Um, the, second, the second that always, because it doesn't, it doesn't annoy me, it always comes up, is uh, the license to kill thing. Okay. The UK has, uh, MI6 has a license to kill. Um, and probably won't surprise you, it's, it's, it's not true. MI6 <laughs> does not have a license to go around killing people. Um, there are various clauses in various um, pieces of legislation which allow 
the uh, breaking of laws if signed off by a foreign secretary, but that still doesn't amount to um, MI6 killing people. Um, and neither does it amount to a license. The license implies they can just do whatever they want, whenever they want. Yeah. But whenever MI6 does a, a covert operation, um, which will involve breaking the law in another country, whether that's through bribing a foreign government official, for example, to do something, that it gets signed off by the foreign secretary, or if it's particularly sensitive, by the prime minister. Um, so the idea that, you know, James Bond's going around there just <laughs> shooting everyone. Uh, but a lot of people still think, a lot of people think that MI6 does still have a license, I say still, it never did. A lot of people, a lot of people still think that MI6 has a, a license to kill when they don't. Those, uh, James Bond has made it difficult for, for people who are trying to explain how things actually work. It's funny though, they have a they have a um, a love hate relationship with 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 James Bond because on the one hand he's quite a good recruiting sergeant for British intelligence because everyone wants to join up. Yeah. On the other hand, the kind of people that want to join up because they want to be James Bond are not people who he wants <laughs> um, working for British intelligence. There's <laughs> a slight double-edged sword there. But yeah. on the other on the other side of it, um, the image of, of James Bond is so global. Uh, and so, so well renowned that it almost increases the mythology around MI6 slightly and, and creates and makes um, overseas people, uh, international people think that um, they're more powerful, they're better than they actually are. Yeah. Uh, which again, I'm just double edged sword because, on the one hand, you don't want to have too much mythology surrounding an intelligence agency. On the other hand, if, if um, our adversaries think that MI6 are in this super amazing. Um, organization then that's that's not necessarily a bad thing it can't be a particularly easy topic to research um given how secretive it, it is but so what are the what are the challenges in researching covert action it's it's it is really hard it's actually really it's really fun and i go back to your very first question about why why i enjoy it and part of it is because because it, it's fun trying to research this stuff mm -hmm. so all of the mi6 files are classified um which doesn't help yeah <laughs> um, but there are like little bits and pieces in different archives that you kind of you start to piece together and try and construct a narrative out of different snippets um and also in um private archives there are little snippets in people's private papers in america there's a lot more stuff because the americans have a much more sensible approach to declassification than we do we are we just fetishize secrecy in this country it drives me mad yeah. um so you go to america well before when, when we could still go to america we would go to america and, and go to the hit the archive trail there which is awesome the life of a historian is so much fun because the americans have decentralized all their archives so like the big ones in dc but then um go to there's a couple in california boston Historians doing the American road trip. But I've just um, I've just finished a book on the British relationship between the British Secret Service and royal family, and we think that British Secret Service are secretive. Oh my goodness, the royal family are ten times worse. <laughs> they, they are they are so much more difficult to research than yeah. even the darkest, most dirty MI6 operation. It really it really put it in perspective. <laughs> That sounds like a really interesting uh, book, actually. So finally, um, on the topic of books, is there a non-fiction book or paper that you've recently read that you would recommend? Ooh, um, yes, many. Which, which one? Um, <laughs> if on the Russia side of things, because that's bigger than, bigger than news at the moment, um, I recently finished reading Thomas Ridd's book called Active Measures, which is a history of Russian disinformation operations going from 1917 
all the way through to the present day. Okay. Um, and it's very, it's, it's, it's a good read, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and it puts the recent stuff in historical context because it's very easy for all of us to think this is all new all the time. Um, but it's not, as we said earlier, it goes back 500 years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, have a, have a read of that one. Brilliant, thank you very much. And thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of In the Shadows. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast outside of each episode, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram using the hashtag InTheShadowsPod. Thanks for listening.